Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. All right, well, let's just do it. Let's get into it. Because we're bloody professionals now. We are. Yeah, we are. Straight into it. Hello and welcome to Chicks 3, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name's Annie and over there in the interweb land is Phoebe. Hello, it is I. We're back again doing the thing we do, the podcasting thing, and we're just going to tell each other some, well, I'm going to tell you a story. And I'm going to listen. And so are all of you. Oh, look mm. at that. Doesn't that sound like a plan? Yeah. For the next maybe half an hour? Mm. Although this is a really good story this week. I had a lot, I didn't know where to stop because there were lots of little side shoots that I wanted to explore. Excellent. Which you will see when we get to it. Um, but before that, any recos, anything you want to share? Recos off the top of my head today, but I did just want to share a little um, oh, pretty amazing story that I've come across yes. in my research. So I was doing some research for a client and um, who's actually a family friend, and in that research we discovered that we are related quite closely. So that was really Stop cool. It. So she is my auntie's best friend, so she's been in my life my whole life. And it turns out that we're related. That's not even the, that's oh, exciting, very exciting. exciting. But um, so I'm doing all of her research. I've done the research on her maternal side and her paternal side. And I think, oh, God, the name of that boat sounds really familiar. This is strange. It turns out that ancestors on either side of her family arrived on the same boat, travelled on the same boat to Victoria. Oh and then God. their descendants, so her parents, 150 years later, these two families come together. They wow. both arrived. And then I'm doing someone else's research. And I was oh like, God. God, the name of this ship sounds really familiar. They've arrived at the same time. Her family have been within the same community as this other family. Oh my so God. So I'm just, yeah, <laughs> I'm blown away. There's all these connections. I thought, oh my God, how's that, how's that possible that you know, two yeah. different families, two sides of the tree um, arrive on the same boat. On the same boat. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Do you have a historical fact for us today? I do. Names. We've all got them. Yep. Mm. <laughs> yep. Yep. You know, sometimes <laughs> I've got four. Mm. Okay. I know I'm very special. Is like that, that including your, like, confirmation name that no one ever really no, oh, not confirmed. Okay. Yes, I'm going to hell. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, sometimes these names are, you know, bestowed upon us by our parents because they like them yeah. or it'll be a that'll do and you're forever crowned with a name like Andrea Fiona. That's not actually my name. That was my the name of my Cabbage Patch doll. I just like oh, to put that out there. Mm. Such a anyway, name, yeah. <laughs> sometimes names can be those that have family connections as well, I suppose, or links to ancestors or even um, events or places of the time. 
However, I want to tell you a little bit about First World War inspired names. Okay. So there's been a bit of research done, particularly in England and Scotland, into the prevalence of naming children after battles um, and after peacetime, after the First World War. This was a way of honouring the dead or to keep families connected to those who fought or lost a husband, brother or male relative generally. So between 1914 and 1918, there were 1,634 babies in England that were given First World War-inspired names and 1,229 were named after battles. However, in the early stages of the war, there were babies named after generic locations such as Belgium or France or Francis um, or Calais. Then as the war progressed, the names became more specific to the battles such as uh, Somme, Dardanelles and Passchendaele. So in most cases, it's unclear whether these were uh, generic names or whether they're male or female names. However, there was also a trend of feminising some of these names, such as Samaria and Dardanella. But the names of the time not only reflected the battles, there was also an uptick in names such as Victory, Peace, Hope, Unity, Armistice and Poppy, which was a symbol, as we know, for remembrance today. And... Just as an aside, I do know of someone who was given the middle name Anzac as they were born on Anzac Day. Really? Yeah, so this would be back in the, oh, I think she was born in the 40s. Wow. Oh, the 30s or 40s, sorry. This cluster of names to show that it was peacetime after yeah. the war. So imagine, um, yeah, having, having the name Dardanella. I've got to say, I've never heard any of those names. Poppy, I know. I just had my friend of mine just had a baby and named her Poppy. Um, so that that's quite common, but I haven't heard any of those other mm-hmm. ones. And it's funny too, quite often when I'm researching and some of the strange, well, not strange names, but unusual names you come across mm-hmm. of the time um, that sometimes you can link back to maybe a place that the family have come from or something that was happening at the time. Sometimes if you dig back far enough, you can find the origin of that name within a family. But, yeah, it's really interesting just having hope or unity or peace as a not necessarily a first name but maybe a middle name for for babies born around that time. So there you go. There's my little fact of the day. Strap in. We're going back to basics. What does that mean, you ask? I do. I do ask that question. What does that mean? Well, we're going to go back to a story of a popular suffragette and uh, today I'm going to tell you all about Inez Milholland, um, but as she was known, much to her annoyance, the most beautiful suffragette. Oh. Because everything had to be equated to the outside physical appearance of women. That's right. Thank men <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> okay, so Inez Milholland was born on August 6, 1886 in Brooklyn, New York to wealthy philanthropist parents. Her dad, John Milholland, uh, was a founding member of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. He was a New York Tribune reporter and editorial writer who then went on to head a pneumatic tubes business that afforded his family a privileged life in both New York and London. Now, I had to Google pneumatic tubes. Please tell me because I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And once I Googled it, I was like, oh, I didn't know that's what they were called. So you know how you're in like a – 
you're in your coals or your woolies and you know when they clean out the register and they put <gasps> the, the pellet up the chute mm-hmm, and it gets mm-hmm. sucked away and it gets taken to like the back office. That's a pneumatic tube. There you go. The proper definition is a system that propels thin cylindrical containers through networks of tubes by compressed air or by partial vacuum. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, pneumatic tube networks gained acceptance in offices that needed to transport small urgent packages such as mail, other paperwork or money over relatively short distances within a building or at most within a city. Her mum, Jean, thought it was very important to expose the children to cultural and intellectual stimulation. So both her parents supported many reforms, among them world peace, civil rights and women's suffrage. So she's coming from good stock. Inez had a one younger sister named Vida and a brother named John, who was also known as Jack. Her sister Vida was also quite active in the suffragette movement uh, as well and later would go on to kind of keep doing uh, Inez's work. Uh, Inez received her early education at the Comstock School in New York and Kensington Secondary School in London. After finishing school, she decided to attend Vassar, but when the college wouldn't accept her graduation certificate, Uh, She attended the Willard School for Girls in Berlin. And look, I think that's odd, right, because Vassar College was a women's school under Mm. the name of, um, it was Vassar Female College, built in 1861, and it was part of the Seven Sisters Colleges, which are higher education schools that were formerly just strictly for women. So um, I don't know why her school certificate Mm. was rejected from those two schools. I'm thinking maybe because she got it in London. Maybe. And she wanted to come and and attend school in. It seems strange though, doesn't it? It really does, and I couldn't find any information on it, but I just thought that was quite interesting. And so she goes off and she goes to school in Berlin. So um, at this school, the Willard School for Girls, um, she's known as an active radical, and while she's there, she's actually suspended for organising women's rights meetings. The president of the college, of the school, had forbidden suffrage meetings, but she and the others held regular classes. Hmm. What meetings on the issue, along with large protests and petitions. In defiance of the campus suffrage meeting ban, uh, Inez instead held meetings in the cemetery across the road. Practical. Um, While she was there, she ended up enrolling two-thirds of the students uh, into her classes and taught them the principles of socialism. And although it was also banned by the school, she and her classmates attended regular socialist meetings in Poughkeepsie. She was also very athletic. She was the captain of the hockey team and a member of the 1909 track team. She also set a record in the basketball throw. Oh, I don't know what that means either. Like maybe there was a competition. You had to see how far you could throw the basketball. Mm, that's pretty self-explanatory, I'd imagine, wouldn't it? But then like again, it could be anything. Mm. Do you reckon it's like getting a hoop? Like for the maybe. furthest away getting a... You're just, asking me sport questions. Just throw, <laughs> what, what, what is this? <laughs> my, not last week, after the episode I did on soccer, mm. thought you'd be down with it. Be across the sport. <laughs> the 1909 basketball throw. <laughs> Um, She was also involved in student productions, the Current Topics Club, the German Club and the debating team. So she was quite busy. She's a busy gal. She's got a lot on her plate. 
After she graduated in 1909, she tried to get into Yale, Harvard and Cambridge to study law and was denied by all three because why everybody all together now, she's a woman. Along with Dorothy Day, Crystal Eastman, Louise Bryant and other activists, Inez was part of an avant-garde Greenwich Village group of progressives and socialists involved in the production of The Masses, a cutting-edge magazine that fused radical art, graphic satire and political commentary. The Masses began in 1911 but was shut down in 1917 because of its editor's anti-war stance. She was finally accepted into the New York University School of Law and graduated with a law degree in 1912. If getting a law degree wasn't enough to keep her busy, she also was interested in prison reform. She was a champion for world peace and worked for the equality of black Americans. Okay, ready for this? I'm ready. member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colour People, same as her dad, the Women's Trade Union League, the Equality League of Self-Supporting Women, the National Child Labor Committee and England's Fabian Society. She was also involved in the National American Suffrage Association, which later branched into the grassroots radical National Women's Party. She became a leader and a popular speaker on the campaign circuit. So there's about eight groups she's a member of. I mean, I volunteer for the local Fringe Festival and that keeps me bloody up to up to my neck in things to do and she's off doing all these plus she's getting a law degree after graduating she was admitted to the bar and joined the new york law firm of osborne lamb and garvin handling criminal and divorce cases in one of her first assignments though she was sent to investigate conditions at sing sing prison At the time, female contact with male prisoners was frowned upon, but she insisted on talking personally with the prisoners to uncover uncover the horrible conditions. As part of her story, she wanted to understand what it felt like to be an inmate, so she had herself handcuffed to one. Wow. I mean, that that would have been a real bloody hoot. Mm. Sing Sing Prison in the early 20th century. Holy bajoli. Mm-hmm. Inez joined her first official suffrage parade on May the 7th, 1911. She held a sign that read, forward out of error, leave behind the night, forward through the darkness, forward into light. That's a, that would have been a big sign. Big sign. There's a lot of, mm. lot of words on that. A lot of words. <laughs> and it wasn't long before she became the face of the suffrage movement. The New York Sun stated that no suffrage parade was complete without Inez Milholland. It was said she had a powerful ability to move crowds at rallies. Her most famous appearance came in 1913 when she led a Washington, D.C. suffrage parade on horseback. Distracting from President Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, the parade came to symbolise a resurgence of the suffrage movement and an increase in younger, more radical activists. So this woman's suffrage procession was on the day before the inauguration of this President Woodrow Wilson. So they they did that on purpose to Mm. make the most... You know, and it was the first suffragist parade in Washington, and it was also the first large organized march on Washington for political purposes. The procession was organized by suffragist 
Alice Paul and Lucy Burns for the National American Women Suffrage Association. And as stated in its official program, the parade's purpose was to march in a spirit of protest against the present political organisation of society from which women are excluded. So as I said, the march was held the day before President Woodrow Wilson's inauguration to make the most impact. Inez was placed at the head of the parade wearing a crown and a long white cape and she was riding a white horse. Love it. She was said to have been called the Joan of Arc of the suffragist movement. She had a banner that proclaimed forward into light, which was a phrase part of the that um, first sign that I read out before and that was also originated by Emmeline Pankhurst mm-hmm. who we have done an episode on way, way back, I think season one with Evie. Evie might have done that one, I'm not sure. But, yeah, that's that story is amazing as well. Mm. So go back and have a listen to that. Immediately behind her was a wagon that boldly stated, we demand an amendment to the Constitution of the United States enfranchising the women of this country. So. When I think of these marches and, you know, you you see them, you hear people, you know, in history we see there's always been quite a few parades and marches. I, in my head, I picture about 100 women maybe all dressed in white Mm -hmm. (laughs) holding, you know, signs that have been sort of painted maybe on cloth and they're just off doing a little, doing their little march. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that what you picture kind of? Yeah. 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 But oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. This is just insane. So I had to go down this little rabbit hole because I was like, what was, what? you know, why was it such a big thing for her to be part of this um, and to lead this procession? So imagine this. You've got all the marching women. So you've got, you know, um, it said that there was at least – 5,000 people <gasps> who participated and some, some records say 10. So there's this argument over if it's a 5 or 10, but it's at least 5,000 participated, not Wowzers. to mention the people who are on the outskirts mm. watching. Um, and the um, organiser, Alice Paul, she dictated a colour scheme for each group of the marchers. The rainbow of colours represented women coming into the light of the future out of the darkness of the past. Oh, that's beautiful. I like that. I know. So not only do you have your marching women, you also have 26 floats, six golden chariots, 10 bands, 45 captains, 200 marshals, 120 pages. I don't know what that is. Like a page, oh, I would have said like boy? a page boy. Yeah. yeah. Six or a page mount- girl. Yeah. Six mounted heralds and six mounted brigades. And a partridge in a pear tree? And a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> the first wow. section. I know. This is huge. The first section had marches and floats from countries where women had already had the vote. Norway, Finland, Australia and New Zealand. The second section had floats depicting historic scenes from the suffrage movement in 1840, 1870 and 1890. Then came a float representing the state of the campaign in 1913 in a positive tableau. So they loved a tableau back then which was, um, you know, basically a group of women depicting a scene from history that's normally like 
um, and they were dressed up in, um, oh, what do you call those things, you know, when you have those parties and you wear a sheet? A ghost? No. <laughs> Toga. Toga. <laughs> that makes way more sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they're all like dressed in togas and they had, you know, the crowns on. A series of floats depicted men and women working side by side at home and in various professions. They were followed by one with a man holding a representation of government on his shoulders while a woman with hands tied stood helpless at his side. There was a float depicting nurses, followed by a marching group of nurses. Groups of women representing traditional roles of motherhood and homemaking came next to change the image of suffragists as being sexless working women. There followed a carefully orchestrated order of professional women, beginning with various nursing groups, um, the Women's Christian Temperance, Temperance Union and the PTA, before finally adding in non-traditional careers such as lawyers, artists and businesswomen. After a float depicting the Bill of Rights came a banner that showed the nine suffrage states in bright colours with the remaining states in black. This theme was also graphically depicted using women dressed similarly. They carried a banner suggesting that voteless women were enslaved to men with the vote, quoting Abraham Lincoln, no country can exist half slave and half free. So... Um, so Inez was a big deal. She was kind of famous mm-hmm. at this point because um, and every time they wanted to do a big parade, they, were, they would call out the most beautiful suffrage, pop her on a white horse and she mm-hmm. would lead the marches. Her work for women's rights continued after this parade and she gave numerous suffrage speeches in the United States and in England campaigning for the women's right to vote. She believed that women should have the right to vote because of the traits that were unique to women. She argued that women would metaphorically become the house cleaners of the nation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Love it. She also believed that women's votes could remove social ills such as sweatshops, tenements, prostitution, hunger, poverty and child mortality. She was arrested picketing alongside female shirt waste and laundry workers during strikes led by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union in 1909 and 1910. She also used her resources as a member of an upper-class family to pay bail for some of the other women that were often arrested. To get men on on her side, she told them they should not worry about the women in their lives as they were extending their sacred rights and duties to the whole country rather than just inside the home. Yeah. Her charisma status and bold personality made her a favourite of the newspaper and New York crowds. The New York suffrage campaign recognised her talents and frequently dispatched her to help boost support for their cause and she quickly became an important asset to the movement. Although she was so deeply passionate about her activism, she often felt disappointed that she was better known for her looks than her brains and most of the press articles focused on her beauty more than her work. (laughs) Forever the pacifist, at the beginning of World War I in 1914, she travels to Italy shortly after the RMS Louisitania, Louis, Louisitania had been torpedoed by a German U-boat. After landing, the captain informed Inez that a German submarine had followed them across the ocean. Oh. No biggie. Nah. With this information, she thought it would be a great idea to start writing for the Tribune and became a war correspondent. 
She fought to be allowed to visit the front lines in the war as she continued to write anti-war articles, but the Italians didn't like it. Mm. Uh, She was continually censored by the Italian government and eventually banned from the country. Upon returning from Italy, she suffered from bouts of depression. She knew that she had been barred from the front simply because she was a woman and she felt like she had returned a failure. In 1915, she was assigned as the leading figure on Henry Ford's ill-fated peace ship. Now, I love this because it's just such a classic example of how a rich, white, American man (laughs) thinks he's going to save the day. So Mm. Henry Ford got an ocean liner and he called it the peace ship. And he, um, it was in 1915 and he launched an amateur peace mission to Europe. He chartered the boat and invited prominent peace activists to join him, including Inez. He hoped to create enough publicity to prompt the belligerent nations to convene a peace conference and mediate an end to World War I. (laughs) Bless him. Yeah. But the mission was widely mocked by the press, which referred to the peace ship as the ship of fools. Infighting between the activists uh, broke out, mockery by the press contingent abroad, and an outbreak of influenza marred the voyage. Five days after (laughs) it arrived in Norway, a beleaguered and physically ill Henry Ford abandoned the mission and returned (laughs) to the United States. (laughs) Catch you guys, I'm out of here. This was a flop. I'm out. So Inez obviously gave up as well. So in terms of her love life, Inez was fairly unlucky, but she was quite bold. In 1909, Inez and fellow radical Max Eastman became rising stars due to their looks. They were both said to be quite handsome, both of them. Mm -hmm. Inez told Max that she loved him and tried to convince him to elope with her. When he finally reciprocated her love and agreed to marry her, she said, too late, mate, and their relationship <laughs> fell apart. Oh. They both realised that they could not be lovers, but they did remain close, lifelong friends. Soon after she began seeing the author John Fox Jr., she told him she loved him, but he didn't reciprocate right away. When he did tell her that he loved her, she was no longer interested. Oh. oh, how long was this period? Are we talking days, weeks, Look, months? No, but back then I'm assuming it's probably only a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> She's probably like, nope, too late. Mm. Nope. <laughs> Sorry. Snooze, snooze your lose, buddy. Snooze your lose. That's it. Um, in July 1913, while on a cruise to London, Inez proposed to Eugene Jan Boisivian a Dutch man that she had known for about a month. The two were married on July 14 at the Kensington Registry Office, which was as soon as they could after their arrival in London without consulting their families. Her dad, who was in town at the time, hears about the marriage in the press and insists the two get remarried in a church, but Inez is not having it. Now another thing with um, Inez marrying uh, Eugene was that when the couple returned to New York from London, Inez was no longer an American citizen because the Expatriation Act of 1907 meant that if an American woman married a non-American, she took her husband's nationality. Wow. Right? And it didn't Mm. actually go into the details of the impact of this, but 
I'm assuming, I mean, she kept doing her thing, so I'm mm. assuming it, it wasn't um, in terms of her cause. I don't think it was a, a big deal, but she would have run into quite a few, I assume, like quite a few issues. Mm. Not being Administrative, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Although she adored children, the couple never had any of their own. Her husband fully supported her suffrage duties and was one of her biggest supporters. In 1916, she had become one of the highest profile leaders of the women's rights movement. She was becoming known as the pin-up girl for the classic new woman. So this was a term used to describe a feminist ideal that emerged in the late 19th century and carried into the early 20th, 20th century. The term was coined by the Irish writer Sarah Grant, who used the term new woman in an influential article to refer to independent women seeking radical change. The term was further popularized by more and more writers, including British American writer Henry James, who used it to describe the growth in the number of feminist, educated, independent career women in Europe and the United States. Independence was not simply a matter of the mind, it also involved physical changes in activity and dress. Uh, as activities such as bicycling expanded women's ability to engage with a broader, more active world. In keeping with her being a new woman, Inez also loved the new dance crazes of the time. The turkey trot. <laughs> gobble, gobble. And the grizzly bear. And she would often perform them even though they were banned. Ooh, Controversial. So- So what are these dances, you ask? I do ask. Well, I'm glad you did. (laughs) So the grizzly bear, I mean, this is amazing, seriously. The dance was was rough and clumsy. During the dance, the dancers would yell out, it's a bear. (laughs) (laughs) The genuine grizzly bear step was a correct imitation of the movements of a dancing bear moving or dancing to the side. A very heavy step to the side with a decided bending of the upper part of the body from one side to the other. A decidedly ungraceful and undignified movement when performed as a dance. I think that's how I dance now. I didn't know it had a name. And there's some footage, if you Google it, you'll find some like really ye olde footage of this couple doing the grizzly bear dance. And they are kind of like, look, they look like they're two bears that are like about to have a fight, but they're kind of crouched over and they've got their little paws out the front mm. and they're just jumping from side to side. And it doesn't, does not look graceful at all. So the other one, the turkey trot, the basic step consisted of four hopping steps sideways with the feet well apart, first on one leg then the other with a characteristic rise on the ball of the foot, followed by a drop upon the heel. The dance was embellished with scissor-like flicks of the feet and fast trotting actions with abrupt stops. Interesting. So it was reported that one of the reasons former President Woodrow Wilson's inaugural ball was cancelled was because of his disapproval of such modern dances. (laughs) As the turkey trot and the grizzly bear. Not long before this, in 1912, New York placed the dance under a social ban (gasps) along with other huggly, wiggly dances, as they were called, like the turkey trot and the Boston dip. So 
Don't think you can just waltz on into 1912 and do a huggly wiggly dance. You can't huggle or wiggle. No huggling, no, no wiggling. <laughs> Thank you. Despite warnings from her physician, she commenced a gruelling speaking schedule across 12 suffrage states. She will begin to experience poor health from pernicious anemia. Mm-hmm. On October 22nd, 1916, she collapsed in the middle of a speech in Los Angeles, California at Blanchard mm-hmm. Hall and was rushed to the Good Samaritan Hospital. Despite repeated blood transfusions, Inez Milholland died on November 25, 1916. The front page news shocked the nation and her fellow suffragists. Her dedication, iconic ideal idealism and tragic death made her a major martyr of the suffrage movement. Her last public words before her collapse were, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? Alice Paul organised Milholland's memorial service, which was held in statutory statutory hall in the U.S. Capitol building on Christmas Day 1916. After her death, her husband, Eugene, remarried another famous woman, the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay, who wrote a poem in Inez's honour titled to Inez Milholland, showing gratitude for all she had done for the women's movement. It's very sweet too. I won't read the poem but look it up because it's it's very sweet. After she died, her sister Vida devoted her time to suffrage work and even went to prison for her cause for three days in 1917. Now I've left the most amazing fact, well, fact as as it was written in the articles that I read on <laughs> the interwebs <laughs> to the end because this is extraordinary. Inez's involvement in the women's suffrage movement inspired the creation of the 1940 comic book character Wonder Woman. No. <gasps> That's character- so cool. I know. The character's creator, William Moulton Marston, was a supporter of women's rights and suffrage. Marston used images of Inez Milholland leading that 1913 suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. as an inspiration for the Wonder Woman comic. In the story, Wonder Woman rides on horseback leading a demonstration much like Inez did in 1913. Inez's legacy, fighting for justice and equality, lives on in this popular icon, Wonder Woman. How cool is that? And that is the story of Inez Milholland, the most beautiful wow. and kick-ass suffragette. Wow. Look, I've got to say also I did some more research into Wonder Woman because I was like, oh, wow, that's – I've never – that's weird. Like why don't we know this? Mm. Why don't we know this? Um, every article I looked at, She's not mentioned. There's no yeah. mention of her. There's nothing. But when you look at the picture of her, there's pictures and we'll put it on our socials, but where she's leading this charge and she's got this crown on and she's got this white cape like over her um, suit. She's wearing like a white suit and she's got this white cape on. You can you, you can you can see it. You can make mm. these like, you know, um, connections. A lot of the Wonder Woman kind of backstory says that she, Physically, she was kind of modelled on her um, the guy's wife in there. So, look, I don't know if it's true or it's not true. I just think I'm going to believe that it is because, yeah. Um, yeah. When you look at when the, yeah when you look at the similarities and especially that the first one Wonder Woman story did involve a woman riding on a horseback leading a mm-hmm. demonstration. So, 
I'm going to say it's fact. Yeah. Oh, that was so good. That was a fun one. That was really good. Um, that was fun researching. And I've got to say, when you go down the suffrage movement as a whole, you know, in early sort of 20th century, late 19th century, there are so many women that you come across, you know, these this amazing woman like, you know, Alice Paul who organised this. I mean, even her story was incredible. You can just you just keep clicking on all the names mm. and just going, oh my god! And there's this woman, and then there's this woman, and then there's this woman, and so it's was it's really hard to pick one, just one mm. woman from that time. I know because you know, well, you might not, but you hear a lot more about Emmeline Pankhurst and Vida Goldstein, exactly, especially for here in Australia. But yeah, it's the others that mm-hmm. might not. Obviously, she was a big deal, but. Main, you may not have any clue about that because yeah. they all played a huge part in the suffrage movement. movement. Mm. Well, there you go. That's it for this week. Um, don't forget to do all the things like we tell you every week. That's just your homework. That's all you've got mm. to do. And we'll see you back here again next week for another Chick's Tree. See you then. See Bye. You then. Bye. Bye.